great that we have those missionaries in so many places across North America sharing the gospel, planting churches. We're truly grateful for that. Today we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Revelation and we come to chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Before we get into the message today though, we want to take a brief time to, to pause and to have a time of prayer for our nation, for our area. Our Southern Baptist leaders have called us to a day of prayer on behalf of our nation with all the uh, fear, all the concerns that are in our nation. And so we just want to want to do that. We want to pause in this moment and, and talk to the Lord. So I want to encourage you just to, to quiet your heart before the Lord right now. Through the work of Christ, we have the privilege of, of coming boldly to the throne of grace, to the Creator, the God of the universe, the Sovereign Lord, to bow our knees before Him, to cast our cares before Him. Put your attention on Him. Our Father, we do come to You today. We humble ourselves before you. We do remember that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are a God of incredible mercy and grace. We praise you for your care for us. And it's with confidence that we come today and we ask you on behalf of our nation, even the world, God, that there's so much uh, fear, so much concern, um, so much hysteria. We ask you, God, that you would come against this virus, that you would slow it down, stop it even. You have that power. And God, we ask you that you would grant to people who are in this time of uncertainty and concern that they might turn their, their thoughts to you as us, your, as their Savior, as their hope. We pray that you would give us, your people, the opportunity, the, the boldness to speak to people about you and the hope that is in Christ. We pray this will be a time of, of evangelism, of sharing the gospel We pray that your spirit might fall upon our people, upon our churches. God, to help us not to be uh, persuaded by the media, but by your spirit and what we read in your word. We pray, God, that you give us your peace, that peace that passes all understanding. We pray you give us the grace to minister to folks in this time, to not look to ourselves, but to look how we might serve others and you in the midst of this. God, we pray for those that are in need, for those there are people that are affected. There are people who have uh, felt the effects of this, and we pray for them that you might minister to them, that you might give comfort and grace to them. And, and Lord, we, we pray that you would give our leaders, the people that are making decisions about what to do and how to handle all this. We pray for our president, for uh, the, the cabinet. We pray for the Congress. We pray you, you would... Give them wisdom in the midst of all of this to do what is best and what is right. And so we bring this before you today. We, we cast our cares upon you in the name of Jesus. We ask you to open up your word today to us to help us hear your heart and to respond to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to talk to you about when love grows cold. You know, the supreme characteristic of a true believer is love for God. When Jesus was challenged about what is the greatest commandment, he responded in Matthew 22 in verse 35. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he says, this is the great and foremost commandment. And Jesus challenged his disciples to make love for him their highest priority. 
And he, and he says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37, he says, He who loves father or mother or more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You see, in order to follow Jesus Christ, we have to make him supreme in our life. We have to love him more than everything else. Anyone else, even our own selves, we have to be willing to lose our lives in order to follow him and to love him supremely. And you remember that when Peter had denied Jesus three times, that the resurrected Christ came to him. And before Peter could go back to ministry, Jesus asked him, he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter is stumbling over his words and he's saying, Lord, you you know I, I really like you a lot. And he says, Peter, do you love me? The real question is, do you love me? That's the question Jesus would ask us. Do you love me? And while, 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 while love for the Lord in some degree is present in every believer, we don't always love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. You see, it can fluctuate. It can vary in intensity. And, and Christians will not always love God supremely. Our, our love for Christ can grow cold. And there's no better illustration of this than the church at Ephesus that we find here in the book of Revelation beginning in chapter 2. Now, I, I want you to read with me these verses in Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Just seven verses here. And it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put them to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, And have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God. Now keep in mind that the seven churches that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3 were actual churches that existed in Asia Minor. We have uh, that map on the screen here, and you can see that they were basically followed the roads in Rome or in the Asia Minor in this kind of a uh, clockwise fashion. This was a postal route, that, and all these seven churches are on this postal route, and Jesus is using these seven churches, these real churches, in, in speaking to them. They represent types of churches that are generally present throughout the entire church age. When you look at these churches, you see characteristics of churches in every age, in every day, all kinds of churches. Five of the seven churches were rebuked for tolerating sin in their midst. And, and, and those, those problems in the five churches ranged from just, you know, their love growing cold all the way to uh, apostasy in Laodicea. And see, all of the problems that you see in these churches are possible in all other churches in the church age. And any church in any church age can have a mixture of all of these sins that plague these churches. Though, though Christ 
may have addressed the church at Ephesus because it was first on the postal route. Uh, it's, it's important to understand that Ephesus was really uh, the most prominent of the seven because it was the mother church of all the other churches that had been planted in Asia Minor. It was out of that ministry that all the other churches came to be. And so Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. You see, the glorified Christ tells the apostle John to write to the angel, that is, to the pastor of the, of the church in Ephesus. And that description that we hear of Christ there comes from the vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1 that we studied last week. In other words, this is one of the elements, one of the characteristics of Christ that we saw in that vision. And it says that the risen Christ is described as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And the one who walks among the golden seven lampstands, or seven golden lampstands. You see, in fact, Christ identifies himself to each of these five churches, the first five churches, with some phrase from the vision of chapter 1. And as we learned last week, the seven stars represent the elders or the pastors from the seven churches. In other words, Jesus holds in his hands these elders, these pastors, and Jesus mediates his rule through the church, in the church through his designated leaders, to the men that he has called to the ministry. God uses them to speak and to minister in the church. He's in control. Christ runs the church. And Christ further describes himself as one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. In other words, Christ walks in the midst of the church. And he examines and he evaluates and he knows everything there is to know about our spiritual condition, good and bad. He knows every heart. Every mind, every motive, he knows it all. And as he sees it, he has opportunity then to address what he sees, good and bad, in the church. Now, Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. The population of that city uh, at that time uh, was estimated about a half a million people. This was a huge city at this time in, in history. It was a free, self-governing city. It didn't have any Roman troops garrisoned garrison there. There was no threat from, from, the, from the Romans. Uh, this city regularly hosted athletic games that rivaled the Olympic Games. Uh, Ephesus was was the primary harbor in Asia, and this city was situated uh, at the at the uh, crossing of four major Roman roads. So it was a trem- city of tremendous commerce, and 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 it was an economic center. But the city was most famous for its worship of the goddess Artemis. The Romans called her Diana. And the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. It took up a block and a half, city block and a half of space. It was like a mall, if you will. It was a massive structure. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the the worship of Artemis was unspeakably vile and chaotic. Her her idol was a grotesque, multi-breasted uh, monstrosity that was supposedly, supposedly fell out of heaven. She was basically a fertility goddess. 
And the temple was attended by numerous priests and eunuchs and slaves. And there were thousands upon thousands of priestesses who were nothing really but prostitutes. And the people engaged in all kinds of immorality in the worship of Artemis. So the city was filled with with pagan idolatry, not just to Artemis, but to other gods, and it was filled with gross immorality. The church at Ephesus had a rich heritage. The gospel had been introduced to this church through Paul's close associates, Aquila and Priscilla. And, of course, very soon they were joined by the eloquent preacher, powerful debater, a man met by the name of Apollos. Paul himself taught there in Ephesus for three years. And he taught them the scriptures and he raised up some great leaders, one of those being a man named Timothy that you've heard about. And according to the testimony of the early church, the apostle John himself spent the last two decades of his life pastoring the church at Ephesus. So you can see this church had some incredible teaching and preaching and leadership, uh, unlike any one other church in the ancient world at that time. And the gospel had had a profound effect on this pagan city. Uh, Acts tells us that, that there were many of those who practiced magic and said they brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. They, they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So many people were turning from, from occult magic and bringing their books and burning them and, and it was an incredible cost for them to do this. And it had a great negative effect on the idle sales of many of these craftsmen. And so they got together under the leadership of of Demetrius, and they had a violent riot against the Christians. And it was to these believers in this kind of a city that Christ addressed his first letter in Revelation. Four decades later, After the time of the Apostle Paul, as Jesus addressed this great church, he has to say to them, you need to come back to your first love. Your love has grown cold. You need to rekindle your love for me. And in doing so, Christ follows a a four-step process. First, when when love grows cold, Christ gives appropriate recognition. He gives appropriate recognition. In in verse 2, it says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So the first thing Jesus says is, I I know your deeds. See, he's the one who walks through the churches, evaluating everyone, every member, and he knows everything about us that that pertains to our spiritual condition, both good and bad. And his perfect knowledge, see, is evident in each of the churches because in each church, Jesus evaluates. Jesus searches. The penetrating eyes of Jesus go into the depth of the church, and he knows every heart. He knows every life. He knows every secret, hidden thing. He knows it all. And he addresses it in the life of the church. Each letter begins with a commendation a recognition of the things that the church was doing that was right, that was good. And you see, Christ gives appropriate recognition, first of all, to our toil. When we work for Jesus, Jesus acknowledges that and commends it. He says in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil. Toil denotes labor to the point of exhaustion. It describes an all-out Effort demanding all that a person has physically, mentally, emotionally. 
The Ephesians were diligent workers for the cause of Christ. They weren't content to eat the fruit of others' labors, but they were, they were plowing and sowing and, and harvesting their own fruit. In the midst of this dark pagan uh, city that surrounded them, they were aggressively evangelizing the lost. They were building up the saints, and they were ministering to the needs of people that were in need. And Jesus says, listen, I I see what you're doing. I commend you. There are a lot of people in this church that work hard, that are incredibly faithful. You know, I could start naming names of those people that you can count on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, week after week. They are there. They work hard. They are faithful. And listen, Jesus knows your work, and he says, I commend you. Thank you. I say, thank you. Jesus gives appropriate recognition of our perseverance. That's also in verse 2. And do you remember that word from last week? It translates the Greek word hupomane. It means steadfast endurance. And that means that we, we don't give up when things get hard. That we keep on working and keep on being faithful even in the midst of difficulties. We don't give up. We persevere. And, and then... Jesus says, you know, I, I commend you for your endurance. You know, there's so many things that happen. Sometimes, you know, somebody's working and hard and being faithful, and somebody comes along and, and has some kind of rude comment or something that, you know, is offensive. And, and then somebody says, well, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm never doing that again. I'll see you later. Never. I'm leaving. That happens all the time. But you know what? There are people that are serving the Lord and not other people, alone. And they just persevere. They endure. They stick it out. Three, Christ gives appropriate recognition to our intolerance. Look at verse 3 again, or 2, verse 2. He says, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Jesus actually commended this church for the fact that they would not tolerate evil men. They did not back down in calling sin, sin. And they had this high standard of behavior. And this church was a church that was no doubt practicing church discipline when they needed to. You know, our church calls for tolerance of everything. But Jesus says, I commend it when you will take a stand against that which is clearly wrong. I commend you for your intolerance. And Christ gives appropriate recognition for our discernment. See, he recognized in this Ephesian church that they had this great spiritual discernment. And he says in verse 2, the last part of that verse, that they put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And are found to be false. In other words, these are false teachers that we're talking about. And the Ephesians never forgot the admonition that Paul gave to their elders there on the shore before he he left many years earlier. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to teach, to shepherd the church of God with which he, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, from a, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. See, false teachers pose a constant danger to the church. And the church at Ephesus took this responsibility very seriously. And I believe that's something that we always must take very seriously. Sometimes there are people who think that we're being too picky when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to teaching. We must be faithful to the Word of God. We must be discerning. And, And five, Christ gives appropriate recognition of our motives. 
See, verse 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake through all the difficulties the Ephesians faced over these 40 years, through all their hard labor and enduring of trials, their, their refusal to tolerate evil, their, their spiritual discernment. See, they had maintained their perseverance. They didn't give up. But Jesus says they endured for the right reason. They endured, he says, for my namesake. They were doing what they were doing for the Lord Jesus. And Jesus commends that. Number six, Christ gives appropriate recognition for our faithfulness. Verse three again, and have not grown weary. That's a kind of an extension of the, of the perseverance, but he's saying, you've been faithful to me. You've been faithful to my word and to the work which I've called you. You, you haven't grown weary. You don't quit. And I commend that. And number seven, Christ gives appropriate recognition of our separation. We go down to verse six, and uh, uh, Jesus says this, and yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know the origin of that group. But what we do know is that in the letter to Pergamum, that it links uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans with the teaching of Balaam, which, uh, which called uh, Israel, caused Israel to go astray and worship other gods. And from that, we know that the deeds of the Nicolaitans involved this temptation to get involved in sexual immorality and the eating of food, sacri- meat sacrificed to, to idols in the name of Christian liberty. In other words, the, the real issue here is kind of a license. As Christians, we can, do, we can be involved in whatever we want to without fear. It's, a, it's, a, it's that idea, and boy, is that prevalent in our world today. People think they can do anything they want to do as Christians and that God is going to forgive them, that they're okay. But I want to tell you that God hates that. He hates it. It is not uh, something that we ought to take lightly. And they, unlike the church at Pergamum, the Ephesian church didn't tolerate the Nicolaitans and their teachings. See, for that and all these other reasons, the Lord Jesus commended them. Think about it. He commends us for our toil, for our perseverance, for, for our intolerance of evil, for our discernment, for our right motivation, for our faithfulness to him, for our separation. Jesus sees all these things, and he says, that's great, guys. I, I, I commend you for that. But Christ also gives a personal rebuke. A personal rebuke in the sense that it's directed at this church in particular. And despite all the praiseworthy elements in the Ephesian church, the penetrating, omniscient gaze of the Lord Jesus discovers a deadly fault, a fatal flaw. And he says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What does it mean to leave your your first love? Well, to answer that question, let's look at the words that compose this this phrase. Uh, First, we begin with left. Left comes from the Greek word aphemi, and it's the intensive form of to go, to send away, or to forsake. This is the word in the New Testament that is translated divorce. It's when you leave your spouse or when you send away your spouse. It's it's a decision that you make, divorce. It was also used to describe the scapegoat when he had the the sins of Israel. He was sent away. So you see, this is a a word that has a very intentional idea. This is not you have lost your first love. 
He says, you have left your first work. This is a decision that a person has made. And then there's the word first. First translates the Greek word protos. It means foremost in time, place, order, or importance. What's important about this word here is that it modifies the word love, which is the Greek word uh, agape. And agape is a a word that describes sacrificial, unconditional love. So here comes the question. Is Jesus talking about leaving a love that is is foremost in time, place, order, or importance? What kind of love is he talking about? And is he saying you have left your earliest love? That is, the love and the excitement that you had when you first became a Christian. Is he, is he, is he calling us to recapture the enthusiasm that we had at an earlier time? Is he, is he talking about the, the honeymoon love of a husband and wife? Well, there certainly may be an element of that. I I think there's an element of that. But I don't think that's the primary focus. Now, you can, if you read uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, you'll see that God talked to Israel like that. He says, I remember when you first became my people and how you loved me. We had this betrothal, we went into this covenant together. But then I also remember how you turned away from me and began to worship other gods. And at the end of it, uh, he says, you have forsaken me. You, you've, it's like a divorce, as it were. You, you've left. There is certainly an, an element of that. But you see, I don't think that, he, that, he, that Christ is calling us to recapture the enthusiasm of an earlier time. Uh, in the fullest sense, I think in a healthy marriage, love deepens and it matures over time. You see, the earliest love is rarely the best love. Sure, uh, that first love can be full of excitement and passion, but you know what? It can also be very immature and selfish. Uh, To go back to an earlier love, in many cases, would be to take a step backwards Now, that's not to say that there can't be excitement and passion, but what I'm saying is that love needs to be more than that, just passion or excitement. In the New Testament, there are three words that are translated love. And I want us to look at love from the perspective of um, love's focus. You know, love can focus on self, or love can focus on others. Love can focus on Christ. And it's like a continuum. You know, it, it, can, it can move. It can change. It can, it can shift. And so I, love can focus one way or the other. As far as depth, there are different depths of love described in the New Testament. The first one, the first kind of love is the love of eros. We get our word erotic from it. That describes a sensual uh, love, a, a, a love of desire and passion. Then there's the word phileo. Uh, the, the church at Philadelphia has that root word in its name. It's the church of brotherly love. It's a love that is a love of friendship, of it's reciprocal. And then there's the, the, the agape love that we just talked about. It's a sacrificial and unconditional love. And it's what happens, see, is we go from the, the, the bottom here to, uh, to the top. We go to, from a, a, a more shallow love to a deeper kind of love. And there's no real line between those. You know, we, we, we talk about them, but it's hard to find a line between them sometimes. The kind of love that we have, it's, it's all mixed together. But, but those are there. Maybe I can to, uh, illustrate it like this. At Christmas time, Agape says, Agape says, you know, I got you this gift because I care about you and I want the best for you. I, I don't care that you, whether you got me anything or not. It's like when you buy something for your children, you're not worried they're going to get you you just want to get them something that is beneficial to them. 
Phileo says, I got you this gift because we're friends and I knew you were going to get me something. You know, we drew names. We set a, you know, a dollar limit. So you got me this, I got you that. It's a reciprocal kind of giving. Eros says, what'd you get me? I hope I like it. See, you see the difference in the focus? The focus, that focus kind of much more on me, whereas when you get to agape, you're looking at a focus that's much more on others. What about in a relationship? See, in, in, in a relationship, agape says, I seek your well-being regardless of what it costs me. I'll sacrifice anything for you. There are parents that have actually sold their house to be able to pay medical bills of a, of a chronically sick child. They do anything for that child. Phileo says, you know, hey, we're in this together. It's a give and take. It's 50-50. You cook and I'll mow the lawn. You know, it's, it's that reciprocal kind of thing. Arrow says, you're attractive to me. You excite me. You satisfy me. You make me happy. See the difference in focus? With Christ, Agape says, I'll take up my cross. I surrender all. I'll follow you whatever it costs me. Phileo says, I'll serve you and you bless me. I'll be faithful and you answer my prayers. I'll give you an offering and you multiply it. Eros says, bless me, Lord. You keep me healthy. You prosper me. And there's, a, there's a, just a, a huge difference in the focus of these types of love. There's a difference in the depth of love. Love deepens as it moves from the, the erotic kind of love to the more sacrificial type of love. But listen, love can also go the other direction. Love can go from agape to eros. And you can go from being focused on Christ to being focused on yourself. You see, the the work that you were once doing for Christ out of love for him, you can be now doing with a focus on you, how it makes you feel, how it impacts your life. The, 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 the kudos you get for what, doing what you do. See, to, to forsake Christ, to forsake your first love is to forsake Christ. Uh, who is the first love of the church? Well, Christ is the primary preeminent love of the church. He's the bridegroom and we are the bride. And somehow in all the busyness of church life, Jesus is no longer front and center. Jesus is no, more, no longer primary. He's not the motivation. Church has become about something else. Church can become something else. Churches become country clubs all the time. And Jesus says your ministry is thriving. Your statement of faith is solid. Your commitment to hard work is exemplary. You're, you're a serving church. And you're a, a discerning church. And you even, you're a persevering church. But you're no longer a church that is centered on me. You're no longer supremely about me. And you see, though they maintain their doctrinal orthodoxy and continue to serve Christ, they have become a kind of a degenerated into a cold, dead, mechanical orthodoxy. See, what happened to these Christians is what happens in a lot of marriages. Life gets full and busy, and, and the person that you love gets taken for granted. The conversation that once was a joining of hearts diminishes and, it bec- and it's living life at the level of who gets the van and who's going to pick up the kids. Affection is crowded out. You're still in the marriage. You're still carrying out all the responsibilities in the marriage. Out from the outside, it looks like it's all functioning. But inside, the love has diminished 
And, and the process leading up to this is often slow and long, but the act of leaving is not. It often takes people by surprise. Wish I hadn't heard it so many times. But someone comes and says, you know, my wife's leaving. My husband's leaving. What did they say? They said, I'm leaving. I don't know why. I don't know why. All that long time, slowly, methodically, it came to that point. But then at the point, it came, I'm leaving. And they're shocked. And, and it's like a wake-up call. What's going on? Uh, you're leaving? Yeah. You know what Jesus says? Wake up, church. Wake up. You're at that point. You're ready to leave. You need to wake up and realize where you are. You've left your first love. You see, and Jesus says, unless you do, if you, unless you turn this around, the light is going to go out. You are going to be a church that has all the external signs of being a church. You're still going to have a building. You're still going to have programs. You're still going to have people working. You're still going to have people singing. You're still going to have somebody preaching. You're still going to have all those kind of things going on. But you are not going to be a real church with the Spirit of God in the midst of it. With Jesus at the heart of it all. And if you look at history, that is exactly what happened to Ephesus. Ephesus is no longer a church. My question is, has this happened to you? Has this happened to us? That's a question we ought to ask ourselves. Because Jesus says this is something we need to evaluate. It's possible to serve Jesus and not love Jesus. How can we make sure that we are about Christ rather than ourselves? Well, Jesus gives a practical remedy. And it's very simple. It comes right out of the text. He says, remember. First thing, remember. Look at verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Now think about fallen. Fallen implies that there was a height and you have fallen to a lower place. Fallen implies that there was a time in your life when you loved Christ more than you do today. Now let me ask you that question. Was there a time in your life when you loved Jesus more than, you, than, you, than you'd love him today? If so, you know what that means? That means you've fallen. That's what it means. You say, uh, what, what, are we, what are we talking about here, the, the height of love? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I mean, does that sound like the height of love to you? Have you ever experienced anything like that? I mean, do you really find your joy in Christ himself? You say, well, I've been coming here to worship and I have even been involved in serving, but I've never really experienced anything like that. Well, well, listen, God wants you to. There is a joy in Christ when you really know him. Some people think it's not real. Some people look at other people and think, that's a put on, that's fake. I want to tell you that there is joy, real joy in Jesus Christ. And it, it's, it's an incredible thing that he does. And if God is starting to stir your heart today about this, don't, don't, don't feel beat up about it. Don't uh, tear yourself up. Or 
be grateful. Be grateful for that. Because you see, that's what he's doing. He's speaking to you about it. And that means it's hopeful if he's speaking to you about it. And he says then, what, if you have fallen, what do you do? He says, repent. That's in verse 5 also. What do you think of when you, when you hear the word repent? You probably think of some horrible, gross, moral failure, some scandal, something that you know, gets in the news. But there's nothing like this among these believers. There's no scandal. There's no great sin. But Jesus says to them, repent. What's he saying repent of? He says, you need to repent of your cold heart toward me. See, the remedy for leaving your first love is repentance. What's the first thing that God asks of you? When you come to Christ, what happens? You love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your being. You must love Christ. You find in Christ like a great treasure, like the man that found a treasure in the field, and then he went and buried it back over, and he went and he sold everything that he had, and he went and he bought that field because that field was a fortune far more than he ever had for himself he gave up everything he had to get this and he got a greater fortune and see when we look at jesus christ when we come to realize who jesus really is we come to realize that he is far greater than anything we ever have we're willing to give up our very life so that we can have the treasure that is jesus And when we come to realize all that Jesus has done for us and how he loves us with this incredible love, then our hearts respond to that love with love. And that is why we get so excited when we first come to Jesus. Because we realize he's forgiven us of our sin. We're going to heaven. We're free from the bondage and control of that sin. We have a whole new life to live now. A whole new purpose. Everything's new. And that's why we're excited. Because it's the realization of that. And you see, so when when he shows that to you, he puts that desire in your heart. It's because he's revealing himself to you. And it's a call to respond to him. Repent. Turn back from yourself and change the focus to Christ. Now listen, if the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, the greatest sin is not loving Christ with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the remedy for that is to repent. You see, in our thinking, we can we got all kinds of other sins that are far greater. But in God's mind, this is a great sin to not love Jesus. And the final part of the remedy is return. You see what he says in the last part of verse 5? He says, and do the deeds you did at first. Now the question is, what deeds... Is he talking about? I mean, these believers are already toiling to the point of exhaustion. What do they need to do? Do they need to go get involved in some more ministries? No. More work is not the answer. What's the first thing that Christian does when God regenerates your soul? Well, what's the first thing that happens when you understand who he is? Well, you just are in love with Jesus. You you want to know, you want to talk about him, you want to read his word, you can't get enough of it. You want to be with his people, you want to sing songs and praise him. You, you want to know more about him. You want to tell other people about him, don't you? You see, you love Jesus Christ and you start relating to him and you walk with him. He's your treasure and you find in him your joy. Do you remember that? You remember that? Do you see that you've fallen from that? You're on a different level? 
Are you ready to return to that? What do you need to do? What do you need to do to love Jesus more? Can you just work that up? This is what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 3 and verse 14. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Can you see the Apostle Paul getting literally on his knees to pray for the church? And he says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Why did Paul pray that prayer? Because without a revelation of God's unconditional, sacrificial love for us, we cannot love God. John has told us that we love him because he first loved us. And it's when we look at what Christ has done for us that our hearts respond to him in love. It's when we, put, we return to looking at Christ and remembering who Christ really is that that's when we begin to respond again in love to God. When we leave our first love, see, we leave Christ. We stop focusing on his love for us, and in response, our hearts grow cold. Subtly, our focus gets on to be on the work. Do you know what happens to preachers? Do you know that happens to deacons? Do you know that happens to teachers? Do you know that happens to people in the choir? Do you know that happens to everybody? Now we get to looking at the work and the thing, and we really forget who's behind it all. It happens. And we need to Repent from thinking of that, that by our works we can bring about something good and lasting and glorious in our own strength. We, we leave our first love when we do that. Can I tell you? I don't want to see our church lose its lampstand. There's a final thing before we close. And that is that Christ gives a promise of reward. That's in verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the letter closes with an exhortation and a promise of reward. And the exhortation is is that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now my question is, are you hearing Christ speak today? That's the question he's asking. If you've got an ear to hear, then you need to respond to him. And what is he saying to us? Verse 7, the last part of that. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He said, who, who, who overcomes? John describes that in his epistle. He says in 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, he's talking about believers, people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. You are overcomers. You can overcome. You can. And if you are an overcomer, if you're a true believer, he says, then you will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And the tree of life first appears in Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden, where it was lost forever because of the sin of man. But that tree of life is now, we learn at the end of the book of Revelation, is now in heaven. 
And what God is, Jesus is promising us as overcomers, as believers, as those who love Jesus, is that our reward is in heaven. He's there. He's coming for us. It's the whole book of Revelation. He's coming for us. He's there. We have a reward. And friends, the great thing about it is you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to enjoy your reward because Jesus is the greatest reward there is. You can have a relationship with him. You know, today we were going to have communion, but we have uh, postponed that. Let me ask you, what do we do when we have communion? What do we do when we have communion? What do we have on the front of our communion table? Do this, what? In remembrance of me. Remember. What are we remembering? Remembering his body that was broken for us. His blood that was shed for us. What happens when we remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us? Do you know what it does? It should instill love and gratitude in us. That's why we do it occasionally, as often as we do. We do that because it's a remembrance. And I want to ask you, if you would, just to close your eyes right now. Though we're not having communion, you can still remember what Jesus has done for you. You can still remember when Jesus lifted that burden of sin off of your life. And you felt the freedom of that. When you knew that you would no longer ever have to face the consequences of your sin. Real forgiveness. When you looked upon him and realized that you have eternal life, life forever, that you have a new power, that you have the ability to overcome sin, that you have a new perspective, a new desire to serve others. that you can go into the very presence of God himself and make requests. Oh, that God, that Jesus, that Jesus that suffered in your place, took, his, took your sin upon himself. That Jesus that was buried. That Jesus that rose from the dead, victorious, over sin and death. That Jesus that ascended to the right hand of the Father. That Jesus that is coming again one day. That Jesus who is the Lord of the church. That, that Jesus that walks in our midst. That Jesus that meets our every need. That Jesus that put his own spirit in our lives. That Jesus. Just love him. Just remember him. Just love him. Just recognize that the things that we so often turn to, uh, they're just temporary. They really don't bring joy. They don't bring real life. He's what brings real life and real joy. And return, return to that, return to Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray that as we focus upon him, you help us to understand to a greater depth 
his, his greatness and his goodness so that we can love him more. Lord, we bow our knees before the Father as Paul did and we ask for that. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.